0: What do you think? I think we're dead meat. Real dead meat. You're dead meat. Go ahead and laugh you guys. If I ever find a little pass of business, dead meat. Hey, welcome to the dead meat podcast. I'm Chelsea and James isn't here. He's still on vocal rest from his surgery. He's doing fine. He can talk a little bit now, but just not a ton at a time. So we're gonna have to wait another week or so for him to come back onto the podcast. So we're gonna do a few short stories this week by Ambrose Bierce. You've probably heard of him. I first read his stuff in English class in high school. He's an American author, 1800s. Um, He served in the Civil War. So his a lot of his work is about that. Uh, like two of the stories that we're doing today deal with that Um, big pioneer of psychological horror and uh, he writes you know some ghost stories they're all kind of spooky they all have to do with death and but they're still he has a dark sense of humor Uh, you may also know the devil's dictionary which is a lot of fun to just kind of uh, browse through if you have the chance but if you know Any story from him, it's an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, which I'm going to read first. Again, there's a pretty good chance you've heard this one already or you've read it in English class. And if not, you'll probably read it if you live in America. (laughs) But uh, so if you start doing Ambrose Bierce in English class and you maybe bring up the one of the other two stories that I'm reading, which are going to be the boarded window and a tough tussle, you'll look like absolute king shit in class. Because everyone knows an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, but you can like pull out the deep cuts and look like a total player. But yeah, we're going to start with an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. I'm just going to have them all kind of segue into one another so we don't, you know, kill the vibe. Enjoy an occurrence at owl creek bridge a man stood upon a railroad bridge in northern alabama looking down into the swift water 20 feet below the man's hands were behind his back the wrists bound with a cord a rope closely encircled his neck it was attached to a stout cross timber above his head and the slack fell to the level of his knees some loose boards laid upon the ties supporting the rails of the railway supplied a footing for him and his executioners Two private soldiers of the Federal Army, directed by a sergeant who in civil life may have been a deputy sheriff. At a short remove upon the same temporary platform was an officer in the uniform of his rank, armed. He was a captain. A sentinel at each end of the bridge stood with his rifle in the position known as support. That is to say, vertical in front of the left shoulder, the hammer resting on the forearm thrown straight across the chest. A formal and unnatural position enforcing an erect carriage of the body. It did not appear to be the duty of these two men to know what was occurring at the center of the bridge. They merely blockaded the two ends of the foot planking that traversed it. Beyond one of the sentinels, nobody was in sight. The railroad ran straight away into a forest for a hundred yards. Then, curving, was lost to view. Doubtless there was an outpost farther along. The other bank of the stream was open ground. A gentle slope topped with a stockade of vertical tree trunks Loopholed for rifles, with a single embrasure through which protruded the muzzle of a brass cannon commanding the bridge. Midway up the slope between the bridge and the fort were the spectators. A single company of infantry in line, at parade rest. The butts of their rifles on the ground, the barrels inclining slightly backwards at the right shoulder, the hands crossed upon the stock. The lieutenant stood at the right of the line, the point of his sword upon the ground, his left hand resting upon his right, accepting the group of four at the center of the bridge. Not a man moved. The company faced the bridge, staring stonily, motionless. The sentinels facing the banks of the stream might have been statues to adorn the bridge. The captain stood with folded arms, silent, observing the work of his subordinates, but making no sign. Death is a dignitary who, when he comes announced, is to be received with formal manifestations of respect, even by those most familiar with him. In the code of military etiquette, silence and fixity are forms of deference. The man who was engaged in being hanged was apparently about thirty-five years of age. He was a civilian, if one might judge, from his habit, which was that of a planter. His features were good. A straight nose, firm mouth, broad forehead, from which his long, dark hair was combed straight back, falling behind his ears to the collar of his well-fitting frock coat. He wore a mustache and pointed beard, but no whiskers. His eyes were large and dark gray, and had a kindly expression, which one would hardly have expected in one whose neck was in the hemp. Evidently, this was no vulgar assassin. The liberal military code makes provision for hanging many kinds of persons, and gentlemen are not excluded. The preparations being complete, the two private soldiers stepped aside and each drew away the plank upon which he had been standing. The sergeant turned to the captain, saluted. And placed himself immediately behind that officer, who in turn moved apart one pace. These movements left the condemned man and the sergeant standing on two ends of the same plank, which spanned three of the cross ties on the bridge. The end upon which the civilian stood almost, but not quite, reached a fourth. This plank had been held in place by the weight of the captain, it was now held by that of the sergeant. At a signal from the former, the latter would step aside, the plank would tilt, and the condemned man go down between two ties. The arrangement commended itself to his judgment as simple and effective. His face had not been covered, nor his eyes bandaged. He looked a moment at his unsteadfast footing, then let his gaze wander to the swirling water of the stream racing madly beneath his feet. A piece of dancing driftwood caught his attention, and his eyes followed it down the current, How slowly it appeared to move, what a sluggish stream. He closed his eyes in order to fix his last thoughts upon his wife and children. The water, touched to gold by the early sun, the brooding mists under the banks some distance down the stream, the fort, the soldiers, the piece of drift, all had distracted him. And now he became conscious of a new disturbance. Striking through the thought of his dear ones was the sound which he could neither ignore nor understand. A sharp, distinct, metallic percussion like the stroke of a blacksmith's hammer upon the anvil, it had the same ringing quality. He wondered what it was, and whether immeasurably distant or nearby, it seemed both. Its recurrence was regular, but as slow as the tolling of a death knell. He awaited each new stroke with impatience, and he knew not why. Apprehension. The intervals of silence grew progressively longer, The delays became maddening. With their greater infrequency, the sounds increased in strength and sharpness. They hurt his ear like the thrust of a knife. He feared he would shriek. What he heard was the ticking of his watch. He unclosed his eyes and saw again the water below him. If I could free my hands, he thought, I might throw off the noose and spring into the stream. By diving, I could evade the bullets and swimming vigorously reach the bank, take to the woods and get away home. My home, thank God, is as yet outside their lines. My wife and little ones are still beyond the invaders' furthest advance. As these thoughts, which have here to be set down in words, were flashed into the doomed man's brain rather than evolved from it, the captain nodded to the sergeant. The sergeant stepped aside. Peyton Farquhar was a well-to-do planter of an old and highly respected Alabama family, being a slave owner and, like other slave owners, a politician, he was naturally an original successionist and ardently devoted to the Southern cause. Circumstances of an imperious nature, which it is unnecessary to relate here, had prevented him from taking service with that gallant army which had fought the disastrous campaigns ending with the fall of Corinth, and he chafed under the inglorious restraint, longing for the release of his energies, the larger life of the soldier the opportunity for distinction. That opportunity, he felt, would come, as it comes to all in wartime. Meanwhile, he did what he could. No service was too humble for him to perform in the aid of the South, no adventure too perilous for him to undertake if consistent with the character of a civilian who was at heart a soldier, and who in good faith and without too much qualification assented to at least a part of the frankly villainous dictum that all is fair in love and war." One evening, while Farquhar and his wife were sitting on a rustic bench near the entrance to his grounds, a grey-clad soldier rode up to the gate and asked for a drink of water. Miss Farquhar was only too happy to serve him with her own white hands. While she was fetching the water, her husband approached the dusty horseman and inquired eagerly for news from the front. "'The Yanks are repairing the railroads,' said the man, "'and are getting ready for another advance.' They have reached the Owl Creek Bridge, put it in order, and built a stockade on the north bank. The commandant has issued an order, which is posted everywhere, declaring that any civilian caught interfering with the railroad, its bridges, tunnels, or trains will be summarily hanged. I saw the order. How far is it to Owl Creek Bridge? Farquhar asked. About thirty miles. Is there no force on this side of the creek? Only a picket post half a mile out, on the railroad, and a single sentinel at the end of this bridge. "'Suppose a man, a civilian and student of hanging, should elude the picket post and perhaps get the better of the sentinel,' said Farquhar, smiling. "'What could he accomplish?' the soldier reflected. "'I was there a month ago,' he replied. "'I observed that the flood of last winter had lodged a great quantity of driftwood against the wooden pier at this end of the bridge. "'It is now dry and would burn like tinder.' The lady had now brought the water which the soldier drank. He thanked her ceremoniously, bowed to her husband, and rode away. An hour later, after nightfall, he repassed the plantation, going northward in the direction from which he had come. He was a federal scout. As Peyton Farquhar fell straight downward through the bridge, he lost consciousness and was as one already dead. From this state, he was awakened, ages later, it seemed to him, by the pain of a sharp pressure upon his throat, followed by a sense of suffocation. Keen, poignant agony seemed to shoot from his neck downward through every fiber of his body and limbs. These pains appeared to flash along well-defined lines of ramification and to beat with an inconceivably rapid curiosity. They seemed like streams of pulsating fire heating him to an intolerable temperature, As to his head, he was conscious of nothing but a feeling of fullness, of congestion. His sensations were unaccompanied by thought. The intellectual part of his nature was already effaced. He had power only to feel, and the feeling was torment. He was conscious of motion, encompassed in a luminous cloud of which he was now merely the fiery heart. Without material substance, he swung through unthinkable arcs of oscillation like a vast pendulum. Then... All at once, with a terrible suddenness, the light about him shot upward with the noise of a loud splash. A frightful roaring was in his ears, and all was cold and dark. The power of thought was restored. He knew that the rope had broken, and he had fallen into the stream. There was no additional strangulation. The noose about his neck was already suffocating him and kept the water from his lungs. To die of hanging at the bottom of a river, the idea seemed to him ludicrous. He opened his eyes in the darkness and saw above him a gleam of light. But how distant, how inaccessible. He was still sinking, for the light became fainter and fainter until it was a mere glimmer. Then it began to grow and brighten, and he knew that he was rising toward the surface, knew it with reluctance, for now he was very comfortable. To be hanged and drowned, he thought. That is not so bad, but I do not wish to be shot. No, I will not be shot, that is not fair. He was not conscious of an effort, but a sharp pain in his wrist apprised him that he was trying to free his hands. He gave the struggle his attention, as an idler might observe the feet of a juggler, without interest in the outcome. What splendid effort, what magnificent, what superhuman strength! Ah, that was a fine endeavor. Bravo! The cord fell away, his arms parted and floated upward. The hands dimly seen on each side in the glowing light. He watched them with a new interest as first one and then the other pounced upon the noose at his neck. They tore it away and thrust it fiercely aside, its undulations resembling those of a water snake. Put it back, put it back, he thought he shouted these words to his hands, for the undoing of the noose had been succeeded by the direst pang he had yet experienced. His neck ached horribly. His brain was on fire, his heart, which had been fluttering faintly, gave a great leap, trying to force itself out at his mouth. His whole body was racked and wrenched with an insupportable anguish, but his disobedient hands gave no heed to the command. They beat the water vigorously with quick downward strokes forcing him to the surface. He felt his head emerge, his eyes were blinded by the sunlight. His chest expanded convulsively, and with a supreme and crowning agony, his lungs engulfed a great draught of air, which instantly he expelled in a shriek. He was now in full possession of his physical senses. They were, indeed, preternaturally keen and alert. Something, in the awful disturbance of his organic system, had so exalted and refined them that they made record of things never before perceived. He felt the ripples upon his face and heard their specific sounds as they struck, He looked at the forest on the bank of the stream, saw the individual trees, the leaves, and the veining of each leaf. He saw the very insects upon them, the locusts, the brilliant-bodied flies, the gray spiders stretching their webs from twig to twig. He noted the prismatic colors and all the dewdrops upon a million blades of grass, the humming of the gnats that danced above the eddies of the stream, the beating of the dragonfly's wings, the stroke of the water spider's legs like oars which had lifted their boat. All these made audible music. A fish slid along beneath his eyes, and he heard the rush of its body parting the water. He had come to the surface facing down the stream. In a moment, the visible world seemed to wheel slowly round, himself the pivotal point, and he saw the bridge, the fort, the soldiers upon the bridge, the captain, the sergeant, the two privates, his executioners. They were in silhouette against the blue sky. He shouted and gesticulated, pointing at him. The captain had drawn his pistol, but did not fire. The others were unarmed. Their movements were grotesque and horrible, their forms gigantic. Suddenly, he heard a sharp report, and something struck the water smartly within a few inches of his head, spattering his face with spray. He heard a second report, and saw one of the sentinels with a rifle at his shoulder, a light cloud of blue smoke rising from the muzzle. The man in the water saw the eye of the man on the bridge gazing into his own through the sights of the rifle. He observed that it was a grey eye, and remembered having read that grey eyes were keenest, and that all famous marksmen had them. Nevertheless, this one had missed. A counterswirl had caught Farquhar and turned him half round. He was again looking at the forest on the bank opposite the fort. The sound of a clear, high voice and a monotonous sing-song now rang out behind him and came across the water with a distinctness that pierced and subdued all other sounds, even the beating of the ripples in his ears. Although no soldier, he had frequented camps enough to know the dread significance of that deliberate, drawling, aspirated chant the lieutenant on shore was taking a part in the morning's work, how coldly and pitilessly with what an even calm intonation, presaging and enforcing tranquility in the men, with what accurately measured interval fell those cruel words. Company. Attention. Shoulder arms. Ready. Aim. Fire. Farquhar dived. Dived as deeply as he could. The water roared in his ears like the voice of Niagara. Yet he heard the dull thunder of the volley and, rising again toward the surface, met shining bits of metal, singularly flattened, oscillating slowly downward. Some of them touched him on the face and hands, then fell away, continuing their descent. One lodged between his collar and neck. It was uncomfortably warm, and he snatched it out. As he rose to the surface, gasping for breath, he saw that he had been a long time underwater. He was perceptibly farther downstream, nearer to safety, The soldiers had almost finished reloading. The metal ramrods flashed all at once in the sunshine as they were drawn from the barrels, turned in the air, and thrust into their sockets. The two sentinels fired again, independently and ineffectually. The hunted man saw all this over his shoulder. He was now swimming vigorously with the current. His brain was as energetic as his arms and legs, he thought with the rapidity of lightning. The officer, he reasoned, Will not make that martinet's error a second time. It is as easy to dodge a volley as a single shot. He has probably already given the command to fire at will. God help me, I cannot dodge them all. An appalling splash within two yards of him was followed by a loud rushing sound diminuendo which seemed to travel back through the air to the fort, and died in an explosion which stirred the very river to its deeps. A rising sheet of water curved over him, fell down upon him, blinded him, strangled him. The cannon had taken a hand in the game. As he shook his head, free from the commotion of the smitten water, he heard the deflected shot humming through the air ahead, and in an instant it was cracking and smashing the branches in the forest beyond. He will not do that again, he thought. The next time they will use a charge of grape. I must keep my eye upon the gun. The smoke will apprise me. The report arrives too late. It lags behind the missile. That is a good gun. Suddenly he felt himself whirled round and round, spinning like a top. The water, the banks, the forests, the now distant bridge, fort, and men, all were commingled and blurred. Objects were represented by their colors only. Circular, horizontal streaks of color. That was all he saw. He had been caught in a vortex and was being whirled on with a velocity of advance and gyration that made him giddy and sick. In a few moments, he was flung upon the gravel at the foot of the left bank of the stream, the southern bank, and was behind a projecting point which concealed him from his enemies. The sudden arrest of his motion, the abrasion of one of his hands on the gravel, restored him, and he wept with delight. He dug his fingers into the sand, threw it over himself in handfuls, and audibly blessed it. It looked like diamonds, rubies, emeralds. He could think of nothing beautiful which it did not resemble. The trees upon the bank were giant garden plants. He noted a definite order in their arrangement, inhaled the fragrance of their blooms. A strange rosate light shone through the spaces among their trunks, and the wind made in their branches the music of Aeolian harps. He had no wish to perfect his escape. He was content to remain in that enchanting spot until retaken. A whiz and a rattle of grape shot among the branches high above his head roused him from his dream. The baffled cannoneer had fired him a random farewell. He sprang to his feet, rushed up the sloping bank, and plunged into the forest. All that day he traveled, laying his course by the rounding sun. The forest seemed interminable. Nowhere did he discover a break in it, not even a woodman's road. He had not known that he lived in so wild a region. There was something uncanny in the revelation. By nightfall, he was fatigued, footsore, famished. The thought of his wife and children urged him on. At last, he found a road which led him in what he knew to be the right direction. It was as wide and straight as a city street, yet it seemed untraveled. No fields bordered it, no dwelling anywhere, not so much as the barking of a dog suggested human habitation. The black bodies of the trees formed a straight wall on both sides, terminating on the horizon in a point, like a diagram in a lesson in perspective. Overhead, as he looked up through the rift in the wood, shone great golden stars looking unfamiliar and grouped in strange constellations. He was sure they were arranged in some order which had a secret and malign significance. The wood on either side was full of singular noises, among which, once... Twice and again, he distinctly heard whispers in an unknown tongue. His neck was in pain, and lifting his hand to it found it horribly swollen. He knew that it had a circle of black where the rope had bruised it. His eyes felt congested. He could no longer close them. His tongue was swollen with thirst. He relieved its fever by thrusting it forward between his teeth into the cold air. How softly the turf had carpeted the untraveled avenue, He could no longer feel the roadway beneath his feet. Doubtless despite his suffering, he had fallen asleep while walking, for now he sees another scene. Perhaps he has merely recovered from a delirium. He stands at the gate of his own home. All is as he left it, and all bright and beautiful in the morning sunshine. He must have traveled the entire night. As he pushes open the gate and passes up the wide white walk, he sees a flutter of female garments. His wife, looking fresh and cool and sweet, steps down from the veranda to meet him. At the bottom of the steps, she stands waiting with a smile of ineffable joy, an attitude of matchless grace and dignity. Ah, how beautiful she is. He springs forward with extended arms. As he is about to clasp her, he feels a stunning blow upon the back of the neck, A blinding white light blazes all about him with a sound like the shock of a cannon. Then all is darkness and silence. Peyton Farquhar was dead. His body, with a broken neck, swung gently from side to side beneath the timbers of the Owl Creek Bridge. A Tough Tussle One night in the autumn of 1861, a man sat alone in the heart of a forest in western Virginia. The region was one of the wildest on the continent, the Cheat Mountain country. There was no lack of people close at hand, however. Within a mile of where the man sat was the now silent camp of a whole federal brigade. Somewhere about, it might be still nearer, was the force of the enemy, the numbers unknown. It was this uncertainty as to its numbers and position that accounted for the man's presence in that lonely spot. He was a young officer of a Federal Infantry Regiment, and his business there was to guard his sleeping comrades in the camp against a surprise. He was in command of a detachment of men constituting a picket guard. These men he had stationed just at nightfall in an irregular line, determined by the nature of the ground, several hundred yards in front of where he now sat. The line ran through the forest, among the rocks and laurel thickets, the men fifteen or twenty paces apart, all in concealment and under injunction of strict silence and unremitting vigilance. In four hours, if nothing occurred, they would be relieved by a fresh detachment from the reserve, now resting in care of its captain some distance away to the left and rear. Before stationing his men, the young officer, of whom we are writing, had pointed out to his two sergeants the spot at which he would be found, if it should be necessary to consult him, or if his presence at the front line should be required. It was a quiet enough spot, the fork of an old wood road, on the two branches of which, prolonging themselves deviously forward in the dim moonlight, the sergeants were themselves stationed, a few paces in rear of the line. If driven sharply back by a sudden onset of the enemy, the pickets are not expected to make a stand after firing, the men would come into the converging roads and, naturally following them to their point of intersection, could be rallied and formed. In a small way, the author of these dispositions was something of a strategist. If Napoleon had planned as intelligently at Waterloo, he would have won that memorable battle and been overthrown later. Second Lieutenant Brainerd Byring was a brave and efficient officer. Young and comparatively inexperienced as he was in the business of killing his fellow men, he had enlisted in the very first days of the war as a private, with no military knowledge whatever, had been made first sergeant of his company on account of his education and engaging matter, and had been lucky enough to lose his captain by a confederate bullet in the resulting promotions he had gained a commission. He had been in several engagements, such as they were at Philippi, Rich Mountain, Carrick's Ford, and Greenbrier, and had borne himself with such gallantry as to not attract the attention of his superior officers. The exhilaration of battle was agreeable to him, but the sight of the dead, with their clay faces, blank eyes, and stiff bodies, which, when not unnaturally shrunken, were unnaturally swollen, had always intolerably affected him. He felt toward them a kind of reasonless antipathy that was something more than the physical and spiritual repugnance common to us all doubtless this feeling was due to his unusually acute sensibilities his keen sense of the beautiful which these hideous things outraged whatever may have been the case he could not look upon a dead body without a loathing which had in it an element of resentment what others have respected as the dignity of death had to him no existence was altogether unthinkable. Death was a thing to be hated. It was not picturesque, it had no tender and solemn side, a dismal thing, hideous in all its manifestations and suggestions. Lieutenant Byring was a braver man than anybody knew, for nobody knew his horror of that which he was ever ready to incur. Having posted his men, instructed his sergeants, and retired to his station, he seated himself on a log. And with senses all alert began his vigil for greater ease he loosened his sword belt and taking his heavy revolver from his holster laid it on the log beside him he felt very comfortable though he hardly gave the fact a thought so intently did he listen for any sound from the front which might have a menacing significance a shout a shot or the footfall of one of his sergeants coming to apprise him of something worth knowing from the vast invisible ocean of moonlight overhead fell Here and there, a slender, broken stream that seemed to plash against the intercepting branches and trickle to earth, forming small white pools among the clumps of laurel. But these leaks were few, and served only to accentuate the blackness of his environment, which his imagination found it easy to people with all manner of unfamiliar shapes, menacing, uncanny, or merely grotesque. Heat, whom the portentous conspiracy of night and solitude and silence in the heart of a great forest is not an unknown experience, needs not to be told what another world it all is, how even the most commonplace and familiar objects take on another character. The trees group themselves differently, they draw closer together, as if in fear. The very silence has another quality than the silence of the day, and it is full of half-heard whispers, whispers that startle, ghosts of sounds long dead. There are living sounds, too, such as are never heard under other conditions. Notes of strange night birds, the cries of small animals in sudden encounters with stealthy foes or in their dreams, a rustling in the dead leaves. It may be the leap of a wood rat, it may be the footfall of a panther. What caused the breaking of that twig? What the low, alarmed twittering in that bush full of birds? There are sounds without a name, forms without substance, translations and space of objects which have not been seen to move, movements wherein nothing is observed to change its place. Ah, children of the sunlight and the gaslight, how little you know of the world in which you live. Surrounded at a little distance by armed and watchful friends, Byring felt utterly alone, yielding himself to the solemn and mysterious spirit of the time and place, He had forgotten the nature of his connection with the visible and audible aspects and phases of the night the forest was boundless men and the habitations of men did not exist the universe was one primeval mystery of darkness without form and void himself the sole dumb questioner of its eternal secret absorbed in thoughts born of this mood he suffered the time to slip away unnoted Meantime, the infrequent patches of white light lying amongst the tree trunks had undergone changes of size, form, and place. In one of them nearby, just at the roadside, his eye fell upon an object he had not previously observed. It was almost before his face as he sat. He could have sworn that it had not before been there. It was partly covered in shadow, but he could see that it was a human figure instinctively he adjusted the clasp of his sword belt and laid hold of his pistol again he was in a world of war by occupation and assassin the figure did not move rising pistol in hand he approached the figure lay upon its back its upper part in shadow but standing above it and looking down upon the face he saw that it was a dead body He shuddered and turned from it with a feeling of sickness and disgust, resumed his seat upon the log, and, forgetting military prudence, struck a match and lit a cigar. In the sudden blackness that followed the extinction of the flame, he felt a sense of relief. He could no longer see the object of his aversion. Nevertheless, he kept his eyes in that direction until it appeared again with growing distinctness. It seemed to have moved a trifle nearer. Damn the thing, he muttered. does it want? It did not appear to be in need of anything but a soul. Byring turned away his eyes and began humming a tune, but he broke off in the middle of a bar and looked at the dead body. Its presence annoyed him, though he could hardly have had a quieter neighbor. He was conscious, too, of a vague, indefinable feeling that was new to him. It was not fear, but rather a sense of the supernatural, in which he did not at all believe. I have inherited it, he said to himself, I suppose it will require a thousand ages, perhaps ten thousand, for humanity to outgrow this feeling. Where and when did it originate? Away back, probably, in what is called the cradle of the human race, the plains of Central Asia. What we inherit as a superstition our barbarous ancestors must have held as a reasonable conviction. Doubtless they believed themselves justified by facts whose nature we cannot even conjecture in thinking, a dead body, a malign thing endowed with some strange power of mischief with perhaps a will and a purpose to exert it. Possibly they had some awful form of religion, of which that was one of the chief doctrines, sedulously taught by their priesthood, as ours teach the immortality of the soul, as the Aryans moved slowly on, to and through the Caucasus passes, and spread over Europe, new conditions of life must have resulted in the formulation of new religions. The old belief in the malevolence of the dead body was lost from the creeds and even perished from tradition, but it left its heritage of terror, which is transmitted from generation to generation. It is as much a part of us as we are our blood and bones. In following out his thought he had forgotten that which suggested it, but now his eye fell again upon the corpse. The shadow had now altogether uncovered it. He saw the sharp profile, the chin in the air, the whole face ghastly white in the moonlight. The clothing was gray, the uniform of a Confederate soldier. The coat and waistcoat, unbuttoned, had fallen away on each side, exposing the white shirt. The chest seemed unnaturally prominent, but the abdomen had sunk in, leaving a sharp projection at the line of the lower ribs. The arms were extended, the left knee was thrust upward, the whole posture impressed Byring as having been studied with a view to the horrible. Bah! He exclaimed. He was an actor, he knows how to be dead. He drew away his eyes, directing them resolutely along one of the roads leading to the front, and resumed his philosophizing where he had left off. It may be that our Central Asian ancestors had not the custom of burial. In that case, it is easy to understand their fear of the dead, who really were a menace and in evil. They bred pestilences, children were taught to avoid the places where they lay, and to run away if, by advertence, they came near a corpse. I think, indeed, I'd better go away from this chap. He half-rose to do so, then remembered that he had told his men in front and the officer in the rear, who was to relieve him, that he could at any time be found at that spot. It was a matter of pride, too. If he abandoned his post, he feared they would think he feared the corpse— He was no coward, and he was unwilling to incur anybody's ridicule. So he again seated himself, and to prove his courage looked boldly at the body. The right arm, the one farthest from him, was now in shadow. He could hardly see the hand which, he had before observed, lay at the foot of a clump of laurel. There had been no change, a fact which gave him a certain comfort. He could not have said why. He did not at once remove his eyes. That which we do not wish to see has a strange fascination, sometimes irresistible. Of the woman who covers her eyes with her hands and looks between the fingers, let it be said that the wits have dealt with her not altogether justly. Byring suddenly became conscious of a pain in his right hand. He withdrew his eyes from his enemy and looked at it. He was grasping the hilt of his drawn sword so tightly that it hurt him. He observed, too, that he was leaning forward in a strained attitude crouching, like a gladiator ready to spring at the throat of an antagonist. His teeth were clenched, and he was breathing hard. This matter was soon set right, and as his muscles relaxed and he drew a long breath, he felt keenly enough the ludicrousness of the incident. It affected him to laughter. Heavens, what sound was that? What mindless devil was uttering an unholy glee and mockery of human merriment? He sprang to his feet and looked about him, not recognizing his own laugh. He could no longer conceal from himself the horrible fact of his cowardice he was thoroughly frightened he would have run from the spot but his legs refused their office they gave way beneath him and he sat again upon the log violently trembling his face was wet his whole body bathed in a chill perspiration he could not even cry out distinctly he heard behind him a stealthy tread as of some wild animal and dared not look over his shoulder Had the soulless living joined forces with the soulless dead? Was it an animal? Ah, if he could be but assured of that. But by no effort of will could he now unfix his gaze from the face of the dead man. I repeat that Lieutenant Byring was a brave and intelligent man. But what would you have?' Shall a man cope, single-handed, with so monstrous an alliance as that of night, and solitude and silence in the dead, while an incalculable host of his own ancestors shriek into the ear of his spirit their coward counsel, sing their doleful death songs in his heart, and disarm his very blood of all its iron? The odds are too great. Courage was not made for so rough use as that. One sole conviction now had the man in possession, that the body had moved. It lay nearer to the edge of its plot of light. There could be no doubt of it. It had also moved its arms, for look, they are both in the shadow. A breath of cold air struck Byring full in the face. The boughs of trees above him stirred and moaned. A strongly defined shadow passed across the face of the dead, left it luminous, passed back upon it, and left it half obscured. The horrible thing was visibly moving. At that moment, A single shot rang out upon the picket line, a lonelier and louder, though more distant shot than had ever been heard by mortal ear. It broke the spell of that enchanted man. It slew the silence and then solitude, dispersed the hindering host from Central Asia and released his modern manhood. With a cry like that of some great bird pouncing upon its prey, he sprang forward, hot-hearted for action. Shot after shot now came from the front. There were shoutings and confusion, hoofbeats and desultory cheers. Away to the rear, in the sleeping camp, were a singing of bugles and a grumble of drums. Pushing through the thickets on either side of the roads came the federal pickets in full retreat, firing backward at random as they ran. A straggling group that had followed back one of the roads, as instructed, suddenly sprang away into the bushes as half a hundred horsemen thundered by them, striking wildly with their sabers as they passed. At headlong speed, these mounted madmen shot past the spot where Byring had sat and vanished round an angle of the road, shouting and firing their pistols. A moment later, there was a roar of musketry, followed by dropping shots. They had encountered the reserve guard in line, and back they came in dire confusion, with here and there an empty saddle and many a maddened horse, bullets stung, snorting and plunging with pain. It was all over, an affair of outposts. The line was re established with fresh men. The roll called. The stragglers were reformed. The Federal commander, with a part of his staff, imperfectly clad, appeared upon the scene, asked a few questions, looked exceedingly wise, and retired. After standing at arms for an hour, the brigade in camp swore a prayer or two and went to bed. Early the next morning a fatigue party, commanded by a captain and accompanied by a surgeon, searched the ground for dead and wounded. At the fork of the road, a little to one side, they found two bodies lying close together, that of a federal officer and that of a confederate private. The officer had died of a sword thrust through the heart, but not apparently until he had inflicted upon his enemy no fewer than five dreadful wounds. The dead officer lay on his face in a pool of blood the weapon still in his heart. They turned him on his back and the surgeon removed it. "Gad," said the captain. "'It is Byring!' adding with a glance at the other. They had a tough tussle. The surgeon was examining the sword. It was that of a line officer of Federal Infantry, exactly like the one worn by the captain. It was, in fact, Byring's own. The only other weapon discovered was an undischarged revolver in the dead officer's belt." The surgeon laid down the sword and approached the other body. It was frightfully gashed and stabbed, but there was no blood. He took hold of the left foot and tried to straighten the leg. In the effort, the body was displaced. The dead do not wish to be moved. It protested with a faint, sickening odor. Where it had lain were a few maggots, manifesting an imbecile activity. The surgeon looked at the captain. The captain looked at the surgeon. the boarded window. In 1830, only a few miles away from what is now the great city of Cincinnati, lay an immense and almost unbroken forest. The whole region was sparsely settled by the people of the frontier. Restless souls, who no sooner had hewn fairly habitable homes out of the wilderness, and attained to that degree of prosperity which, today, we should call indigence, than, impelled by some mysterious impulse of their nature, they abandoned all and pushed further westward, to encounter new perils and privations in the effort to regain the meagre comforts which they had voluntarily renounced. Many of them had already forsaken that region for their remoter settlements, but among those remaining was one who had been of those first arriving. He lived alone in a house of logs, surrounded on all sides by the great forest, of whose gloom and silence he seemed a part, for no one had ever known him to smile nor speak a needless word. His simple wants were supplied by the sale or barter of skins of wild animals in the river-town, for not a thing did he grow upon the land which, if needful, he might have claimed by right of undisturbed possession. There were evidences of improvement." A few acres of ground immediately about the house had once been cleared of its trees the decayed stumps of which were half concealed by the new growth that had been suffered to repair the ravage brought by the axe apparently the man's zeal for agriculture had burned with a failing flame expiring in penitential ashes the little log house with its chimney of sticks its roof of warping clapboards weighted with traversing poles and its chinking of clay had a single door and directly opposite a window The latter, however, was boarded up. Nobody could remember a time when it was not, and none knew why it was so closed. Certainly not because of the occupant's dislike of light and air, for on those rare occasions when a hunter had passed that lonely spot, the recluse had commonly been seen sunning himself on his doorstep if heaven had provided sunshine for his head. I fancy that there are few persons living today who ever knew the secret of that window, but I am one, as you shall see." The man's name was said to be Murloc. He was apparently seventy years old, actually about fifty. Something besides years had had a hand in his aging. His hair and long, full beard were white, his grey, lusterless eyes sunken, his face singularly seamed with wrinkles which appeared to belong to two intersecting systems. In figure he was tall and spare, with a stoop of the shoulders, a burden bearer. I never saw him. These particulars I learned from my grandfather, from whom I also got the man's story when I was a lad. He had known him when living nearby in that early day. One day, Marlock was found in his cabin, dead. It was not a time and place for coroners and newspapers, and I suppose it was agreed that he had died from natural causes, or I should have been told and should remember. I know only that, with what was probably a sense of the fitness of things, the body was buried near the cabin, alongside the grave of his wife, who had preceded him by so many years that the local tradition had retained hardly a hint of her existence. That closes the final chapter of this true story, excepting, indeed, the circumstance that many years afterward, in company with an equally intrepid spirit, I penetrated to the place and ventured near enough to the ruined cabin to throw a stone against it and ran away to avoid the ghost which every well-informed boy thereabout knew the haunted spot. But there is an earlier chapter, that supplied by my grandfather, when Murloc built his cabin and began laying sturdily about with his axe to hew out a farm, the rifle meanwhile his means of support. He was young, strong, and full of hope. In that Eastern country, once he came, he had married, as was the fashion, a young woman and always worthy of his honest devotion, who shared the dangers and privations of his lot with a willing spirit and light heart. There is no known record of her name, of her charms of mind and person tradition is silent, and the doubter is at liberty to entertain his doubt, but God forbid that I should share it, Of their affection and happiness there is abundant assurance in every added day of the man's widowed life, for what but the magnetism of a blessed memory could have changed that venturesome spirit to a lot like that. One day, Murloc returned from gunning in a distant part of the forest to find his wife prostrate with fever and delirious. There was no physician within miles, no neighbor, nor was she in a condition to be left to summon help. So he set about the task of nursing her back to health, but at the end of the third day she fell into unconsciousness and so passed away, apparently, with never a gleam of returning reason. From what we know of a nature like his, we may venture to sketch in some of the details of the outline picture drawn by my grandfather. When convinced that she was dead, Murloc had sense enough to remember that the dead must be prepared for burial. In performance of this sacred duty, he blundered now and again, did certain things incorrectly, and others which he did correctly were done over and over. His occasional failures to accomplish some simple and ordinary act filled him with astonishment, like that of a drunken man who wonders at the suspension of familiar natural laws. He was surprised, too, that he did not weep. Surprised and a little ashamed. Surely it is unkind not to weep for the dead. Tomorrow, he said aloud, I shall have to make the coffin ere I dig the grave, and then I shall miss her when she is no longer in sight. But now, she is dead of course, but it is all right. It must be all right somehow. Things cannot be so bad as they seem." He stood over the body in the fading light, adjusting the hair and putting the finishing touches to the simple toilet, doing all mechanically with soulless care, and still through his consciousness ran an under sense of conviction that all was right, that he should have her again as before, and everything explained. He had had no experience in grief. His capacity had not been enlarged by use. His heart could not contain it all, nor his imagination rightly conceive it. He did not know he was so hard struck. That knowledge would come later and never go. Grief is an artist of powers as various as the instruments upon which he plays his dirges for the dead, evoking from some the sharpest, shrillest notes, from others the low, grave chords that throb recurrent like the slow beating of a distant drum. Some natures it startles, some it stupefies. To one it comes like the stroke of an arrow, stinging all the sensibilities to a keener life, to another as the blow of a bludgeon, which in crushing benumbs. We may conceive Murloc to have been that way affected, for, and here we are upon surer ground than that of conjecture, No sooner had he finished his pious work than, sinking into a chair by the side of the table upon which the body lay, and noting how white the profile showed in the deepening gloom, he laid his arms upon the table's edge and dropped his face into them. Tearless yet and unutterably weary, at that moment came in through the window a long, wailing sound like the cry of a lost child in the far deeps of the darkening woods, but the man did not move. Again, and nearer than before, sounded that unearthly cry upon his failing sense. Perhaps it was a wild beast, perhaps it was a dream, for Murloc was asleep. Some hours later, as it afterward appeared, this unfaithful watcher awoke, and lifting his head from his arms intently listened. He knew not why. There in the black darkness by the side of the dead, recalling all without a shock, he strained his eyes to see. He knew not what his senses were all alert, his breath was suspended, his blood had stilled its tides as if to assist the silence. Who, what, had waked him, and where was it? Suddenly, the table shook beneath his arms, and at the same moment he heard, or fancied that he had heard, a light, soft step, another, sounds as of bare feet upon the floor, He was terrified beyond the power to cry out or move. Perforce he waited, waited there in the darkness, through seeming centuries of such dread as one may know, yet live to tell. He tried vainly to speak the dead woman's name, vainly to stretch forth his hand across the table to learn if she were there. His throat was powerless. His arms and hands were like lead. Then occurred something most frightful, some heavy body seemed hurled against the table with an impetus that pushed it against his breast so sharply as nearly to overthrow him and at the same instant he heard and felt the fall of something upon the floor with so violent a thump that the whole house was shaken by the impact a scuffling ensued and a confusion of sounds impossible to describe murloc had risen to his feet fear had by excess forfeited control of his faculties he flung his hands upon the table Nothing was there. There is a point at which terror may turn to madness, and madness incites to action. With no definite intent, from no motive but the wayward impulse of a madman, Murloc sprang to the wall, with a little groping, seized his loaded rifle, and without aim discharged it. By the flash which lit up the room with a vivid illumination, he saw an enormous panther dragging the dead woman toward the window, its teeth fixed in her throat. Then there was darkness blacker than before, and silence, and when he returned to consciousness the sun was high and the wood vocal with sounds of birds. The body lay near the window, where the beast had left it when frightened away by the flash and report of the rifle. The clothing was deranged, the long hair in order, the limbs lay anyhow. From the throat, dreadfully lacerated, had issued a pool of blood not yet entirely coagulated. The ribbon with which he had bound the wrists was broken. The hands were tightly clenched. Between the teeth was a fragment of the animal's ear. Thanks so much for listening, you guys. I hope you enjoyed our Ambrose Bierce Power Hour this week. Uh, Next week, I think, and I'm not 100 on this, but... I think we're going to go try and see the new Invisible Man movie, which I've heard great things about. So I'm pumped. I think we're going to try and review that for you guys. So, all right. We will see you next week. Bye-bye.